to A Bookshelf Binge. I'm your host, Jessica, and today I'm joined by literary agent John Cusick. John is the Senior Vice President at Folio Literary Management, focused on young adult and middle grade books. You might recognize some of his titles he's represented, such as Dumplin' by Julie Murphy, We Hunt the Flame by Hafsa Faisal, and Ash Princess by Laura Sebastian, along with so many others. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This is so fun. When did you get start being a literary agent? Like, what is your origin story? <laughs> sure. So, um, you know, I moved to New York after college uh, looking for some kind of job in media. I wasn't sure what exactly I was going to do, but um, publishing was definitely one of my top um, fields that I wanted to be in. And I had a you know a horrible time trying to find a job. I interviewed mostly on the editorial side because I didn't really know uh, I didn't really know about agents or literary agents or really what they did and, you know, couldn't find work after months and months um, and eventually answered a job uh, posting on Craigslist for uh, a dog walker to a literary agent to be like their personal assistant dog walker. And that was the, that was the job that I got. I interviewed for it. Um, I was working for a great guy, Scott Trammell. Uh, he uh, still runs Scott Trammell NY, which is a literary agency that just does kids' books. Um, you know, and to start, true enough, I was, it was very Devil Wears Prada. Like, I was walking the dog down the streets of New York with, like, the laundry and the coffee in one hand and, like, the phone in my ear, like, doing the full thing. But as time went on, you know, Scott really uh, wanted someone to mentor. And as I worked with him and saw what he was doing, I realized that, uh, well, a couple of things. One that the kids side, publishing world, kid lit, YA, middle grade, picture books, that stuff was a really great place to be. And everyone who was there on some level really wanted to be there for its own sake because they loved the work. Um, and that's really cool. And then, uh, you know, the other thing I realized was, um, I, you know, I thought I wanted to be an editor, but I was much more at home being a, a literary agent for a couple of different reasons. But you know, one of them being that uh, we talk a lot. So there you go. That's early, early joys of hearing myself talk coming out in my career path. Can you kind of explain what being a literary agent means? Sure, absolutely. So essentially what a literary agent does, the, the big thing that we do is we help authors take their books and sell them to publishers. Um, so most publishers won't read manuscripts by unrepresented authors. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One of which is that there are just so many people um, who want to be published that, you know, an editor's office would just be absolutely buried, you know, from the ground up with, with queries and, and inquiries like that from, from people who want to be published. Um, you know, editors also uh, like working with literary agents, I think, because we can help explain things to the author that they might not know coming into the business cold about how certain things work, what expectations are or whatnot. And also I think every editor, even though the editor's job is to you know, serve the publisher first and foremost, they wanna know that the author that they're working with is being well taken care of and advocated for, that someone is standing up for them and fighting for them and or whatnot. So that's one of the reasons why a lot of publishers um, will only work with authors who have agents, but also why it's great to work with an agent, period. So in addition to just sort of placing projects with publishers, we're also career managers. 
so even once uh, a deal has been done with a publisher, we're negotiating the contract, we're uh, selling what are called sub rights. So that might be the audiobook version of your book or even the dramatic rights for film or television or whatnot. Um, we're helping you, you know, work on your next project to follow up on your on your debut and helping you get that book under contract. It was a uh, not a two book contract to begin with. So agents wear many hats, uh, including, you know, therapist and occasional bartender. You know, the main thing that we are there to do is to help writers make money with their writing. You know, we're, we're financial partners. We're a way to help you make uh, the act of writing a financially viable career path, which is a tricky thing to do. And that's why, you know, sometimes it can be uh, good to have help. How does one go about finding a literary agent? Like, I feel like something that has been discussed somewhat fully on the podcast is that finding a literary agent is so difficult. Mm -hmm. Like, why is that? Why is that the case? How does one do this? So it's interesting. I think, you know, the, in a certain sense, actually finding someone you want to represent your book and, and submitting to them is, is probably not that difficult because the good news is that there are a ton of literary agents out there and there are more and more every year. So it's definitely a field that is growing. So there's more opportunity for authors to find the right representative. Um, I think what is tricky is that the publishing market is so super duper competitive. So many people want to be writers and for publishers, you know, they only have so many slots on their shelves. Um, they only have a, you know, a budget per year that they can spend on books. So they really have to choose very, very carefully and very wisely from, you know, those, those uh, huge numbers of, of wannabe uh, authors and their manuscripts. So I think to, the tricky thing is finding an agent who feels that your project is ready to compete competitively in that, in that atmosphere, you know, um, and agents are really, you know, one thing I didn't mention in the answer to the last question about what an agent does or whatnot is that agents um, work solely on commission, meaning that they don't get paid until their authors get paid which is why they're really your advocate as the writer. You know, they, they don't succeed without you succeeding. You know, your success is their success. Um, so why did I get down on this path? Um, how does one go about finding one? That's how we started. <laughs> yes, and why, is it, and why is it so tricky? Yes. Um, so the first thing you can do uh, to find yourself a literary agent, and this sounds like facetious advice, but it's true, is to really like hone your craft study what else is being published in the space that you want to be published in um, to really present your best idea and your best project. Um, but in terms of how do I find the right person for me? How do I uh, kind of get through the, uh, the no cut through the noise and the competition? The first thing I would say is in terms of literally finding the agents you want to query, um, there are a couple of different resources, but one of the best ones is uh, go to your local bookstore, pick up the, uh, a book written by an author that you love who writes something very similar. So for instance, let's you said you were a fan of We Hunt the Flame. You could go out and pick up Hoffs's book and flip back to the acknowledgements and there she thanks her agent, it was me. So, that is a great place to find agent names really right off the bat. And you can see this person represents exactly the kind of thing 
that I want to do. And they do it well enough that this author wanted to thank them in their acknowledgments, right? So that's a very useful resource. And I think once you have that name, you Google it and you see if you can find that agent's website. On the website, they will usually have their submission guidelines. And for those of us that remember applying to college and that whole deal, it's very similar in that most agents are looking for basically the same thing in terms of their submission guidelines, but each one is a little bit different. So you want to be very careful to read carefully, uh, see what their guidelines are, and, and, and follow them to submit. The other resources certainly are uh, websites like um, querytracker.com is a great resource. It's really, it's almost like a Yelp for agents. Um, you know, uh, Twitter as well is a great place to sort of meet a certain cross-section of agents who participate on social media and who participate on Twitter specifically. Um, Twitter remains a, a very active social media site for particularly YA authors and industry professionals. Um, so that could be an interesting place too to sort of see uh, what people are talking about in kid lit publishing, what authors, agents, and editors are sort of talking about the issues of the day. And you can also get a, a sort of sense of an agent's personality um, by, you know, sort of what they tweet and how they tweet. Uh, that can be a nice way to kind of get a more personal look at who this, who this guy or gal or, or, or whoever is that you're going to be submitting to. One of the, like, my very early guests on the podcast, and I can't think of who it was, but they were saying that they actually like found an agent through Twitter. Like they participated in like yeah. one of the Twitter like pitch wars type things. And it's like the internet's a fascinating place these days. <laughs> well, it is because it's definitely like bifurcating by age, I think. Like I said, you know, oh, that's an interesting, you know, Twitter's an interesting place to meet a certain cross section of agents. So you know, I got on Twitter in 2009 when I was only like a year or so into working for Scott. And my generation of agents, I'm 37 now, are, are very active on Twitter. The generation immediately above me, a little older than me or senior than me, aren't really. Like, um, you know, some of the more senior agents at Folio who do you know, great work and represent very contemporary uh, stuff, they're not on Twitter. It's just not something that they, they do. Um, I would imagine that if it's not already TikTok, there is a, a newer platform that the agents who are younger than me are already on that I'm completely unaware of because now I'm old. So, you know, it's always, there's always different places to find people. Um, but YA Twitter is infamous too. I mean, it really is like such a, um, such a community, uh, such a dumpster fire at times, um, <laughs> you know, but that's, that's definitely a place to kind of see the, uh, to, to meet the, the world of YA lit in a lot of ways, you know. You focus on middle grade and young adult novels. Is that because of your first company that you worked for? Like that's how you got your start or is there a reason why you focus on those types of stories? So it's a little bit of both, you know, I think one of the things was that where that was where I happened to get my start, but I think I decided to stay because at the end of the day, publishing is a business and it can it's very easy to get very cynical about it. Um, and it can be uh, cutthroat in different ways and, and it's tough, right? But when you're working on projects that are for teens and for you know kids in middle school or whatnot, like especially like, you know, um, 
you know, I work with um, an author, Jules Macias, who is non-binary and they have a middle grade book coming out called Fight or Flight that is uh, features a non-binary character. And, you know, I didn't see that a lot growing up in, in the books that I was reading. And that's like, no matter what, getting to work on that book, I'm like, that's awesome. And I did something good today and that's fulfilling. And so I think, you know, Kidlit offers that like, you're, you're doing something positive for young people, um, as cheesy as that can sound, that uh, really kind of keeps you warm um, on days when, you know, you're feeling kind of saltier about the industry in general, you know? I love that. Would you say having an agent is pivotal to author success? It really depends on what you want to do. There is an author that I just started working with. Uh, her name is Sierra Simone. And she writes not books for teens at all. She writes erotica. And I was going to say, didn't she write The Sitter? Yes. And the Priest series and whatnot. Amazing, <laughs> right? Okay. So, so Sierra has had a ton of success self-publishing and she is a machine and she does not need an agent to do that at all. Um, and, and yeah, and there's like, there's different, there's different, um, things that someone like her might need, like she might hire a publicist or someone to help her with social media marketing or whatnot. Um, she might hire a, a, a freelance editor though. At this point, I doubt Sierra is using one of those, but she doesn't really need an agent because she's not working with a publisher. Um, now when Sierra and uh, her writing partner, Julie Murphy, who wrote Dumplin' and who was a client of mine, they wrote a romance together um, that is like more saucy than Julie's books and less saucy than Sierra's books. It's like the Venn diagram, right? It's the middle. For that, I represented the both of them on that deal to Harper Avon and that submission. So she, I was her agent on her traditional book, but for her self-publishing stuff, she didn't really need one. That said, um, if you do want to be published by places like HarperCollins, Simon & Schuster, Disney Hyperion, Little Brown, any of those like um, big five or traditional trade publishers, including independent publishers, you'll have to have an agent because as I was saying at the top of the interview, a lot of those places don't work with under, uh, unrepresented authors, I should say. But that said, you absolutely want to be working with an agent. And I know that I'm biased, but the publishing system is really not set up to take care of an author or to sustain their career. Um, writers are treated as very disposable. Publishing contracts are not set up to be author friendly and the whole system is not set up to be author friendly. Um, and if you don't know, if you aren't educated in certain quirks of the business or, um, or if you don't have the sort of standing to you know, kind of stand your ground and advocate for a position, you might really be at sea at different times. The other thing is like, so for instance, I'm a writer, but I don't represent my own stuff. And I could in theory, um, but I don't because um, when it's your own material, it's very hard to be objective and it's very hard to be sort of cold and clinical and strategic about your work. Um, you know, I, I answer publishing emails all day long, but if I get an email from my editor about my book, I have to like go to my agent and be like, is he mad at me? Like, what does this mean? Interpret this, you know? 
because when it's your stuff, it's just totally different. So I feel like I'm kind of, there are many agents like me who write, but as one of them, I'm a, I'm a poster child for why you need an agent, because even if you can do all of this stuff uh, professionally that an agent does with your know-how and your savvy and your education, you do want to have that buffer. And I think editors want that buffer too. It's kind of what I was saying earlier when I was like, they like to work with an agent because, you know, you want your relationship with your writer. If you're an author, you want your relationship with your editor to be super um, happy and positive all the time. No human relationship is positive all the time. So that's why it's nice to have an agent to come in and be, you know, kind of the bad guy if that's needed or, um, or kind of negotiate some of that stickier territory, you know. That's so interesting to me. No offense to the big five. I feel like a lot of people think that like big publishers like tend to take advantage of like smaller authors. And so it's so fascinating that like they make that harder by like forcing an agent to be in the middle who was obviously going to advocate for their author. And like, I know that that's like a really like not nice generalization, but that's kind of how it feels sometimes. (laughs) I would, but I mean, I, I think that your point stands though, because I always assume anything a publisher does is for its bottom line. So somewhere, someone must have done the calculus that it costs us more money to deal with writers than it does to deal with agents. So and I don't, and I don't know how they quantify that, but like that, that would be the the thing I would say. But it is, I mean, your view of publishing <laughs> and publishers is one hundred percent accurate. I mean, that's just. <laughs> there's no other way about it. They're not great partners all the time. So, you know, if they do something, I mean, you know, if they do something, that's always the suspicion. You would make a good agent by thinking that way. So like, why are you doing this? Like, why is this? It seems like it's good for me, but it can't be. So what, what's the real reason? You know, we need a business analyst on the call. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's true. I actually, I don't know how, you know, when it came to be that they were like, we're not doing unsolicited submissions you know part of it it's funny we forget this now but part of it could literally have been a resources thing um because all submissions used to be paper you know when i started we used to put our submissions if i was submitting to 10 editors i had 10 printout copies that went to these special submission boxes and we had a courier you know a guy would come on a bike and he would deliver them by hand around the city that was like my first year or two of of being in publishing it sounds wacky now, but, um, you know, so also anytime I see like a courier on like TV, I'm like, this is, is this still a thing? Do they still have bike messengers? Is this a, (laughs) oh yeah, this is, this was the thing we would do. And, and, um, and I know there were these, this is like really like when I, you know, in my day, but like, I think it was Curtis Brown used to have special blue boxes or green, but I don't know, but it's like, you knew it was a Curtis Brown submission because it was a particular color. Um, no one younger than me remembers this at all. Like I was definitely at the tail end of this, this era. Um, but yeah. So it's like, if you were a publisher, your mailroom would just be overrun with paper. You know what I mean? That you have to sort through. And then, you know, think of it, this is probably back in the day where publishers, if they received something with a self-addressed stamped envelope, they would be like, well, we'll reply because that's just the decent thing to do. So that would be work and time and someone you have to pay to do that. So like let agents deal with that, you know? So that's, you know, maybe that has something to do with it too. How fun. We just need to set up a call with a business analyst as part of this next time. (laughs) 
how involved are you in the writing process as an agent? I heard an interview that you did for a show that I can't remember, but I'll find it and I'll link it. But you said that as an agent, you also kind of work as an editor. So like how involved are you in that? Pretty involved. Um, and, and, but that's not uh, unusual. A lot of agents these days are, are what would be considered editorial agents. So um, when we send out a submission nine times out of 10, we're trying to send out a complete book that is as polished as it possibly can be. And the reason for that is just the aforementioned competitiveness. You know, everyone is sending out stuff that's that quality, that's that finely tuned. You gotta be sending out, you know, you can't be sending out something half finished, right? Um, so there's editing that goes in before the submission. And when I start working with an author, if I'm reading a full manuscript, what I expect is that that manuscript that the author has gotten that manuscript as far as they can possibly get it on their own. Um, but I don't expect that to mean that it's submission ready. I expect that there's gonna be some work that we do together. So I'm not looking for perfection when I'm reading a, a, a submission, but I will usually do one or maybe two big editorial passes with a project before it goes out on sub. And that second one, or maybe a third one, might be like a close line edit of the first 50 pages or so, just to make sure that the prose is absolutely like flawless, smooth, you know, uh, nothing to create a, a poor early impression for an editor just reading these pages. So there's a lot of editorial work that goes in there. Um, but I'd also say, you know, the next place where I might be uh, a bit of an editor is when um, the author is thinking about their next project. So once the book is under contract with the publisher, I step back and I want the author and the editor to have their own creative editorial relationship. Like I don't want to be hovering or like I don't usually read the editor letters unless there's some issue. Like I want to trust that they can take over for me um, and do a much deeper and, you know, more exhaustive job than I ever approach. Um, but when the, when, sorry, when the author comes up uh, with their next project, that's often a time where they might come to me either with an idea in its early stages, or maybe, hey, I've got a really rough first draft. Will you take a look at this? You know, when I'm signing on an author, usually they're querying something that's very polished, right? But at this point, I'm kind of working with them on stuff that's in a much earlier stage, usually, because they're not querying me. We're working together already. So um, I will work with them to kind of, uh, you know, help decide, oh, which project is best for you to focus on next? And, um, you know, at what point do we talk to your editor about this project? Um, you know, the project in and of itself, does it need work? Can I help you there? Um, so it's all that kind of feedback kind of with each uh, new book, potentially. How often is it that an author will change publishers or editors? Like, is that a fairly common occurrence depending on like the series or whatnot or do you pretty much lock your authors in with a specific publisher so i think the an ideal or perhaps maybe an old school ideal is you build a relationship with a publisher for book to book for year to year and that does still happen i have i have authors who have really built amazing relationships with their publishers book to book and um, you know, their, their editors are like family. I mean, you know, that definitely still happens. I will say what is equally common though is um, 
either the author will move to a different publisher or the editor will move to a different publisher or leave the industry entirely. I, you know, I would say in years gone by, I would have said that happens about a third of the time. Now I would say it's closer to half the time um, because of a number of reasons. Uh, one of the things is that um, on the editorial side, very, it's very rare to see editors promoted within their own company. Uh, if they're gonna get, if they're gonna move from editor to senior editor or associate editor to editor, at least from my point of view, it seems like what most often happens is that they move to a different house to do it. So when they do the move, they're jumping up a, a level. That happens all the time. So, uh, you know, a large number of books somewhere in the process are going to lose their editor to a different house. Um, and that is a bummer, but it's less disruptive than you'd think. I mean, there's a whole team surrounding the editor to kind of pick up the slack. And usually, you know, honestly, I think publishers are so practiced at this now that they're really good at the baton handoff. Like it's really uh, more seamless than it used to be. It used to be like, oh my God, my editor's leaving. What are we going to do? And now it's sort of like, yeah, okay. You know, this happens. When an author decides to leave the publisher, that's kind of a different scenario. You know, you might leave because the publisher isn't servicing you the way you want them to. You could have a bad relationship with them, um, you know, some sort of falling out or unhappiness that you say, hey, my next book, I'm going to go someplace else. I'm going to go across the street or what have you. Um, but what also happens, is, and I think this, this is something that's probably more common, is um, the publisher doesn't want to do your next book because the first one didn't sell well enough. And publishers are not very incentivized to do a second or third book with someone. They're much more incentivized to find a new debut person who's totally untested. Um, and there are reasons for that, which we can talk about. But um, basically, it's, it's a tricky thing to stay under contract and to re-up with a publisher um, in an ongoing way. It's definitely not uh, like just the default. It's, uh, it takes some doing. So what can sometimes happen is, you know, the publisher doesn't want to buy the next book or, you know, there's just not enough enthusiasm for the author at the house. So you're moving them elsewhere in an attempt to rehome them, but more because uh, the publisher wasn't really happy with you more so than you're not happy with the publisher. Uh, you know what I mean? Fascinating. I interviewed Danielle Jensen really early on and she published one of her series traditionally, but it got cut off after the third novel because it didn't do well. And so mm. she indie published the fourth one, mm. but it's, I was like, is this common? Like as an agent, like, do you see this often? So, you know, in terms of a series, oftentimes publishers will buy, um, in the olden days, of uh, five years ago, um, <laughs> a lot of publishers were buying series uh, in batches of three books at a time. So you'd get a three book contract for a whole series. What happened, I'm not sure if this was the case with the person you mentioned, but what happened with some of those series, probably the majority, is that they didn't do as well as, you know, Divergent or Twilight or the other series that they were kind of, you know, trying to capture the magic of. What did happen in a lot of cases is publishers would sometimes cancel the series before the contract was up. So it's like, you know, we did a three book contract. Um, we contracted you for three books in this series. We're actually going to lop the third one off. 
So you probably don't have to pay us back any money from what we've already paid you, but we're not going to pay you for finishing a third book because we're not going to publish a third book. So that happened uh, not seldom um, back then. Uh, after that, publishers became uh, much more enthusiastic about buying things in twos, so duologies. And, you know, one, one editor I work with at Delacour, Krista Marino, she always says, like, talking about the, the reverse situation, like, you can always add another book. Like, if uh, a duology is doing wildly well, we'll do a third one. Like, why not? Sign it up. And if that third one does really well, let's do a fourth one. Like, as long as the author is into it and the sales are going, like, they can, cheap, they can keep adding new contracts book to book. But they're understandably, I think, risk averse to like, you know, no one's going to say like, I'm going to buy your seven book series and here's a contract for seven books. It's never going to happen because it's just too much risk, you know, right at, right out of the gate, you know. Fascinating. I find this whole thing fascinating. <laughs> Can you kind of talk about your process of evaluating queries and like choosing who you pick to work with? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I think it's important to remember sort of to like sort of step back and take a bird's eye view. Like, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to find something that I think an editor will offer on. So extrapolate out from there. First thing and foremost, I'm looking for a concept that I think is really sellable. So the fact of the matter is, is that you can have um, a good book. You've written a book. It is it is pretty darn good, but the concept is just, it's just about a person growing up. It's about a person living real life. They're well-written. It's, it's well-imagined. It's well, you know, well-put, um, but there's just no way that book is ever going to make it through because there's, a, there's another book that's also written pretty darn good that has an idea, a concept that makes you go, wait, what? That's pretty cool. Like, that's different. I want to hear that, you know? You know, think of like Everything, Everything by Nicola Yu. Like story about two kids falling in love across the street from each other is one thing. Story about two kids that are in love with each other and one of them has this horrible disease and she can't touch anybody and there's a twist with the mom. Like, holy cow, that's way more interesting. Like, of course that book is going to be the one that goes, right? So I'm looking for concepts that I think are saleable. And that really is a wide, uh, a pretty wide swath. Secondly, I'm looking for, once I see that the concept is, is pretty interesting, then I'm going to the sample and seeing how, is the, how effective is the writing. For me, the voice has to be awesome right out of the gate, because there's not a lot that I as an editor can do to improve voice. And when I say voice, I'm really referring to, um, you know, if you were to take a paragraph of the person's writing, what could you tell from just a paragraph? You know, the, the musicality of their prose, how, you know, the tone, how, they, how their words flow, how they choose to describe a scene or a person. It's just kind of the line level going along writing. Like, is that there? Is it right for the market? Is it interesting? Is it clear? All of that good stuff. So now if I see that both of those are green lights, I'm, I'm requesting the full manuscript. And from there, I'm reading to see how well does this all hold together. Um, and most, if not all of the projects that hit that level where I'm requesting the full manuscript, it's not really a question of can this person write or is this project workable? It's usually, is this project 
close enough to submission ready that I can take the risk of working on it for hours, potentially for free and having it not sell. Because remember agents, you know, I have clients that I've worked with for five years for free because we haven't sold their first book yet. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm debate, you know, I'm, I'm doing the calculus of, is this close enough that I feel confident I can invest my time in it to then do the gamble of sending it out in submission and, and hoping that it sells some things. It's like, Hey, if I spent a year with this person as like their writing coach, obviously we would get there, but I don't have a year. And with each new client you sign, you have, you have less time potentially to, um, like spend time really developing someone's craft with them, which is why I usually tell younger agents, like with their clients and who they're signing on is that you can edit a book, but you can't be teaching someone how to write. And I think at the point where you're kind of teaching someone how a story works or teaching someone how to write, that person isn't ready for an agent. That doesn't mean they're not great, but that's not what an agent is, is for. You know, um, so yeah, so those are the things sort of in order that I'm looking for and like reading the full manuscript, you know, I'm looking for plot issues, pacing usually is the main thing. Um, but the problems in the full manuscript are, are the most fixable. Like once you get to that stage, there's, hey, this pacing is a little slack. Maybe we can tighten it up here. Or, hey, you know, this person shows up on this page. I feel like they really need to be back here in chapter three those are fixable things. Um, whereas, hey, the way you describe people and the way the flow of your sentences go just isn't interesting to me or it doesn't work for me. Like that's not something that you can expect to really ask someone to change or fix. You know, that's, uh, that's a little bit more ineffable, you know? So fascinating. So interesting. I'm, I'm obsessed with this whole process. <laughs> <laughs> What is your biggest piece of advice to authors looking to send in a query letter? There are a ton of resources online. All you need to do is Google, but just look up like strategies for writing a query letter, how to write a great query letter. Um, it's not hard to do, but it is a specific thing. And you kind of need to learn what works and what doesn't and what agents expect. So I think start right there. Um, and I could talk your ear off for an hour about the various ways to do that, but there's so much online. So there's no excuse. You can find it there. So really work on your query letter. Uh, and I think research your industry as much as you can. So presumably you love to write and you do it a lot if this is, you know, where you're at. Um, and I think that what separates the, the writers from the published authors is that the published authors love to write and they also make their writing a full-time business. So if you're at the querying stage, I think what that looks like is, are you reading the new YA in your space? So if you're comping Divergent or you're comping Alice in Wonderland, like that's a red flag to me as an agent because I want to know that you're, you're up on what is being published right now because that's your audience right now, right? And then finally, I think, you know, when you're thinking of your book idea, I think, you know, most of us don't sit down and think, I'm going to write a book. Like, let's come up with a really great commercial concept for that book. Like, it comes out of something else. Like, it's, it's like you, you become obsessed with a character, there's a place, there's a moment, like, and you start building out from there. 
I think what I see, especially new authors uh, run into trouble with is they get too precious about the thing that just kind of came out. And that thing is not objectively better or more pure than taking the thing that just came out and completely tearing it apart and reversing it and setting it in space and putting it back in time. Like, don't be precious about your work um, because no one else is going to be. And the people who can sort of pivot and say, okay, that didn't work. I'm going to try something new and um, I'm not too heartbroken about it. Uh, or not so heartbroken that I can't get up and do more work tomorrow. Those are the people who really are are lasting in the industry. And I think that the folks who are like, the folks who are like, this is the book of my heart every single time and are really inflexible and really need that book to succeed exactly in a specific way, they will probably run into more disappointment and frustration um, and are more likely to burn out. So yeah, so I think, you know, part three is, is um, be flexible and, and don't, be, don't be precious. I feel that. But also you can always tell the author that sat down and was like, let's, look, let's write a book that's for commercial success. You can always you tell can. it's on there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, 100%. That is so true. You always want to read the ones that are like, this was a passion project for like 30 years and I love it so much. And like, as a reader, like that's like, I'm like, oh, I love this. <laughs> you get it though. You know, I'm I, I'm embarrassed to say that I'm just um, finishing um, Firekeeper's Daughter, even though I'm like way, way behind the, the, um, the crowd on that one. And that book took her 10 years to write and it shows, you know, it really like, that is a very popular book that is also so damn good and so damn well-written. Like it's clear she put a lot of time and, and care into that project. Though I, I will take this opportunity to say as a writer, that is the exception to the rule. And I really want to advise against getting stuck on one book pre-agent for more than three or four years. And the reason is, if you sell that book to a publisher, you now have to do a second book in one year. Like in YA, they're not going to be around in four or five years. If you come back four or five years later, say like, I have another book, they're going to be like, literally, who are you? Because everyone you worked with here is gone. And like, we're now called something different. And now teens read only this kind of book. You know what I mean? So it's like, it doesn't work that way. So I think do work your craft. Um, but again, don't be precious. Like you learn a lot, you don't necessarily realize this, but you learn a lot more about writing um, by moving from project to project than you do by just drilling down on one thing for a million years. Um, so, so just be careful about like holding on to that one thing. Cause I guarantee you, like the writers I know who are like, I've worked on this book for, you know, seven years and I've workshopped it and I've queried it. And I'm like, just trying to get it. I'm just trying to get through and then it doesn't work and they, you know, they're pulling their hair out and then they write something new and it comes out in a second and that's the one that sells because they've been learning so much about writing and craft and process through this whole thing, but they're stuck with a book that has all this like baggage and like editorial stuff that just goes back for years that when they let it go, it's like a rubber band, like they're just free, <laughs> you know? and like their imagination and their new um, skill set can just like go to work right from scratch. 
So anyways, that was a long ramble, but I just no. wanted to be careful because I know, I know there are writers out there who, you know, are working really hard on things for a long time. Something wrong with that. Just don't be afraid to uh, see what happens when you start something new because you might find it really uh, positive. No, I find that fascinating because I would never have thought of that. It never would have considered the effects of like, I it took me 15 years to write this. What do I do about a sequel or a second book? Or like, I never would have thought about like step two. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. You're a writer yourself. Do you think that changes how you approach new submissions or how you approach helping an author, like knowing that process and like how you went through it? Yeah, definitely. First of all, I'm, it gives me a ton of empathy for what my writers are going through. I mean, I've been on submission, I've been rejected, I've had things not work out, you know, so I know, I also know what it feels like to get critiques and notes and to be, to have that book of your heart, like, if I can talk this way, it's because I've been in that seat and I kind of know what it feels like. Um, I think as a result too, is like having seen things both from the agent side and from the author's side, I can, I can kind of say, hey, this is something that you should really be upset about with your publisher and like stick your feet in and like, this is really uncool and we're gonna fight back. And that, but I also similarly know, like I completely understand why you are heartbroken over X, Y, and Z but also this is a thing that you need to swallow or like this is a thing that everybody has to deal with and now is not the time, this is not the battle to pick. You know what I mean? So knowing both of those things, like I know that you feel this way, like an agent who's not a writer might not know that. I think also with editorial stuff too, it's night and day because knowing how the sausage works, uh, is made rather, like knowing what it's like to put it in and like how, not just, how to fix a book that is half written, but like knowing how it got to that point, like you can read a, a client's manuscript and be like, I know, I know what happened. Like, I don't just know what's wrong. I know how you went wrong because I know what you were trying to do. And like, we can reverse engineer this and get it to where it needs to be. Um, so I think it, that really helps as, as well. It's just kind of uh, being very um, intimately well-versed in sort of the writing process from both sides uh, makes me a, a good person to have around in those moments, you know, and I'm not, the, I'm by far not the only agent who, who writes as well, but getting to do both is, is fantastic, you know. How, speaking of that, how do you balance pushing your own stuff out and also like pushing everyone else's? <laughs> <laughs> balance does not um, exist. <laughs> Yeah, no, totally. There is no balance. Um, no, I think at a certain point I had to decide, am I an agent or am I a writer? And I'm an agent, you know, I, I love to write. Um, but I, you know, like I said, I think um, authoring, being a published author, uh, to do it well, it's kind of a full-time job. Um, and, you know, I think agenting is more my calling. Honestly, I think that that this is a place where my skill set, my attitude, and just who I am serves what I do really well. Um, I, I'm here's okay. Here's here is the uh, hierarchy of my skill set. Okay, um, I'm a writer better than I am anything else. I think I am a really, <laughs> really good writer. Immediately under that is agent. 
I'm, I'm, I'm almost as good of an agent as I am a writer and under way, way down is like author. Like I am a crappy crummy author and God bless my agent for putting up with me as a client. But that's definitely like the, <laughs> the tier in my estimation. I don't know if other people would see it that way, but I think that's the case. That's so funny. Like, I love that it gives you like, kind of like a leg up on all of the empathetic aspects of being an agent, but like yeah. being able to recognize strengths is also like huge. <laughs> well, but that's, you know what, but see, here's the other thing is I think it is significant to be able to say about yourself or about somebody like, they're a great writer, but I also know why they're not a successful author. Like those two things can be can come together, but they don't necessarily, and you can see the disconnect, you know what I mean? And I think it can help, you know, because inevitably if, if an author is having a bad day or they're having a bad run, sometimes they'll point to something that's on the New York Times bestseller list and they'll say, John, I read that and it's terrible, you know, or it's so badly written or like, what is the story? Um, and it's understandable, you know, that they would feel that way. But also as the agent, I can say, well, you know, here's, what was on the bestseller list when this was sold. Here's who sent it out and, and what they had sent out before. Here's the editor that bought it and what was going on in her life. Like I can give you the picture of how this happened. And that doesn't you know necessarily take the sting out but it provides some context that you wouldn't have necessarily as just someone who is um, a full-time writer, you know? Yeah, and also like that like distance of being able to see the forest through the trees. I get that. I struggle with that with this podcast and it is much less of like me pushing my heart out onto a page for billions to read. So authors just like, I'm just blown away by. Me too. I mean, this is the other thing is that I am so wowed by my clients who do this as a job and who do this, you know, while raising kids and being full-time teachers and, you know, Agenting is, is, in my opinion, incredibly stressful, but it's not my book out there, you know, at the end of the day. And, and it's so different when it's your own baby. Um, so yeah, I am, I am always really in awe of, of my authors who, who really do the author thing because it is scary and it's really not easy, you know? I'm blown away by the authors that continued after their first query was like rejected. That first rejection, I'd be like, I'm not an author. It's fine. I'll find another job. <laughs> find another way. <laughs> it's the only, you know, and the only thing is that you just get used to it. You get so, well, you don't, but you do it anyways. You go <laughs> forward anyways. You don't get used to it actually, but um, yeah. Blown away. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to do it. So you don't get paid unless a book sells. Right. What happens if you love a book if you think that this is like a fantastic book but it's not it doesn't sell it's not a home run with publishers like you thought it would like what, yeah. what happens then sure so uh, oftentimes um writers will ask this question smartly when an agent is offering uh on their manuscript they'll say like it's a really smart thing to ask the agent like okay, so what happens if this one doesn't sell? Like, how, how do you work as an agent in that scenario? And everybody's a little bit different. And it's good to, good to peg them down on that question because I think it's important. Um, so for me personally, I, when I sign an author, I'm always signing the author, not the project. So I am using what I glean from 
their book, from my conversation with them, from their query letter, any source I can to kind of estimate um, whether this person is going to be great to work with book to book to book, right? And so if a project doesn't sell, what I usually say is, you know, let's put this on the shelf and what are we doing next? What's next? Like, what are you working on? Like, what's the next book? What's the next thing we're going out on submission with? And I will say, um, not seldomly, do we go out with number two, that book sells, and then the original book, which didn't sell, gets a second life and becomes that author's sophomore novel. So I can say with one middle grade author, we went out with her first book, didn't sell, went out with her second book, slightly more commercial concept, that book did sell. And because she now had a um, in with that editor, she had a great relationship with the publisher, she could bring that, we could bring that first manuscript to her current editor and say, hey, what do you think of this for book two? And they did that one as her sophomore novel. I mean, she edited it, they worked on it. Um, but I've also just had that happen with an author um, who writes both adult and kid-led and young adult. Um, and we sold an adult project and then um, to that same publisher, took a YA book that he'd written and it was, it became an adult book. So that publisher was like, I love this thing. Um, I think it's right on the border and could be done as an adult book. Like let's do a little tweaking and this will be your sophomore adult novel. So sometimes that happens too. But the short, the short answer to the question is we just move on to the next thing. I think that if we have sent out two projects and neither have sold with like really exhaustive submissions. So it's like, we've gone out to a round one, we got feedback, we revised, we went out to a round two, we tried this, we tried that, like maybe we'll try it as a audio original, et cetera, et cetera. We've really like done our best through two complete manuscripts and neither have sold. That's a moment at which I think the both of us need to kind of say like, what, what's going, what's happening here? Like something's not connecting either you know, the, the books aren't right for the market or the agent's strategy for selling the books isn't right for the books. And so at that point, I think I'd start to have the conversation with the author, like, you know, maybe we should part ways, but that's not a rule. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of like specific instances in which that's how it's gone down and I can't really think of them, but that's my answer when authors ask me. And that would sort of be my, my guiding strategy is like, you know, after two, we, I think we want to reassess and figure out why that's like what's going wrong, but that could end in us going separate ways or that could end in just a different approach, a different market, you know, who knows. Interesting. That's fascinating. You mentioned that like looking at like audio rights, audio first rights, mm -hmm. does that do you, like, is that a method you use often is to like make it be audio first rather than published no, or not kind really. of like a last so, ditch yeah no so so i wouldn't frame it as a last ditch but i would say that there are companies now that are doing um audiobook originals so for instance like audible has an originals program um and there are podcasting companies this is not new like audible originals and that program have been around for a while um but it's also not from 
from my perspective, super duper common, like people do it. Audible Originals as a program is very active. Um, but like, for instance, myself and my colleagues at Folio haven't done a ton of audio originals when you compare it to, you know, say traditional books, but it is out there. Um, it is something that I look at. I will say Audible as an Audible original is often on um, around one or two sublists for say a, a commercial YA project because they can do, um, they can make a big splash when they want to, um, but it just depends on the book, you know. Fascinating. And then are there any instances where like your, say one of your authors comes with you with a manuscript and you're like, this would be better traditionally published or this would be better indie published. Is that ever like a conversation that you have or do you pretty much advocate for traditional? I would say I'm, I'm as an agent, I'm here to, to represent your traditional work. Like if yeah. you're indie publishing, there's, you don't need me. Like there's not, there's nothing for me to do. I think in the, in the olden days, uh, again, five years ago, you know, Folio, my agency that I work with, um, used to have a sort of a program that was like, hey, if you're doing Kindle originals, so if you're self-publishing to Amazon, um, as your agents, we're happy to like kind of do the back end, like the administrative stuff for you. Um, and we did that for, for authors for a while, but not enough people really wanted to do it. So we stopped like mentioning it to clients because it just wasn't that much interest. Um, so, which is all to say that like agents, um, at least myself, I'll speak for myself, I'm not really involved in self-publishing in that way. So where that conversation might come up for me is, so I don't represent picture books as much as I used to, but I remember I had a picture book author who really wanted to do a particular project that was very close to her heart and it was related to her family and it was about Alzheimer's and it was illustrated by someone in her family. And it was just the kind of thing that was like, I mean, it was really, really genuinely lovely. Like there wasn't a, a negative critical thing I could say about it in terms of it itself as a work. But just it just made no sense as an investment to a publisher. Like no publisher would be like, yeah, we're going to float you a bunch of money for this book because it just doesn't it wouldn't have had a wide enough audience because it was so specific. So something like that is like self-publish that like you don't need to because a publisher would have been like, well, we don't want to use this artist or we want to make it about Alzheimer's, but in this broader way or whatever. Um, or they might have said, oh, you know, we have an Alzheimer's book already and we don't need to or something lame like that, you know. In that instance, it makes so much more sense for the author to self-publish that, that project. Um, otherwise, I feel like if you're someone like Sierra, who is really building a self-publishing business in the genre of erotica, which is very, you know, there's a lot of self-published stuff there. If that's really your business and your focus, again, like you probably don't need an agent. So we're probably not conversing about it. You know what I mean? So it's like, if we're having a conversation about your book, chances are like the assumption is we're talking about trade publishing. Interesting. And so I asked this on the heels of, there's been a lot of news about like a mass exodus from like traditional publishing, both of the authors and the people who work within it. So like, true. is this something that you're worried about? Is this something that you've also noticed as an agent dealing with both sides of this? Yeah. So um, worried? No, not for myself, selfishly, um, because agenting is one job that 
can really morph with whatever's going on. Like maybe in 10 years or 20 years, I'm going to be doing a lot more of the like publicity and marketing um, advancement for self-published authors like Sierra. Maybe I am going to be doing more of that stuff because, you know, let's say publishing just goes away, which isn't probably, probably not going to happen. But if it did, there's still something that I know I can do. So agenting is too, is, is too slippery a, a profession for me to um, get super stressed about that. So I'm, I'm a big fan of the mass exodus. I think that the editors that I work with are some of the most wonderful human beings that I've, I've met in my adult life. The corporations that own the publishers that they work for are toxic and anti-human, not to mention anti-writer. Um, everything they do is bad for you and us generally. So <laughs> you absolutely want someone to advocate for you. I got so excited about that that I forgot the question. What, what, <laughs> what was, why was I ranting about? Publishing being evil. Oh, the, yes, the, that, oh, the but also the mass exodus. Yes. <laughs> the, the mass exodus. So, like, good. And I think the what's happening is this has always been. Um, it's always been a whole, like a very difficult place to work, um, and you have to think of it like, you know, when I was coming in, it's like, do you want to be? You want to be in Hollywood, kid? Like, if you want to be here, you you don't have to. You can do. You can work in any industry, but if you want to work here it's really tough because it's really competitive and there are people willing to work longer hours than you. So we're gonna give the job to them rather than you if you don't wanna work those hours because everybody wants that job. Um, I think the current generation of, of you know junior staffers, people who are a little bit younger, um, they look at that and they're like, there's no reason we should accept that as just the norm. And there's no reason that the people who have those jobs should accept that treatment and they're not wrong um i did and so did everyone i know like the reality is everyone who's older than them on some level is like okay but i did it you know what i mean but that's the problem is that there's an older generation of uh industry professionals who are like well i'm it was i'm okay so you know suck it up when that it's much more complicated than that um first of all the entire older generation is almost exclusively affluent white people, um, you know, who are either independently wealthy or came from affluent families and so could work in publishing for a pittance and make that work. So that's a huge difference. It's not just about paying your dues. It's that, you know, we're trying to diversify our incredibly um, white industry and that means that if you're asking someone to work overtime, it's not just like, oh, this is a fun lark. Like what a, what a great learning experience for me. Like so tricksy now, you know, and then on the weekends I'm having martinis with daddy on the, on the yacht. Cause that's the, what, where, how it started. Like yeah. publishing was a gentleman's business. If you had money and didn't need to work, this was like an okay thing to do. That wasn't too dirty, you know? Um, so it is good that everyone is uh, now has the vocabulary um, and can say things like late stage capitalism and know what that means. Like, I didn't know what that word meant. And that wasn't being circulated on Twitter when, in 2009, you know? So there is a massive generational divide. Um, I think it is a good thing. Um, I don't know what's gonna happen. Uh, I think that you might say, well, if publishers are such a mess, 
then uh, there's going to be an opportunity for indies to sweep in and replace them. But the thing is, publishers, again, like because they're corporations, they're kind of too big to fail and they can crush those indies just with cold, hard cash, as Kevin from Shark Tank would say. So that I don't think is going to be it. But I did have a blinding flash of the obvious today. So this is my prediction for the future. I think that the, you know, the James Pattersons and the Stephen Kings and the Jenny Hans and the, you know, the Hofsas and the people who are really killing it sooner or later are going to be like, I don't need you to, to do this. Like that is the next step. And it's not that far away. Now, the average writer needs a publisher. You do. If you want your book to be hitting the bookshelf simultaneously on the same day across the country, if you want thousands of people to see your cover that, you know, mythical seven times that gets them to make a purchasing option, you need a publisher. You're not going to do that on your own, almost certainly. The problem is nine times out of 10, the publisher isn't going to do that for you either. So I think as soon as writers, especially those who have a big following and a platform and like are thinking in those, I hate this term, web three kind of ter- kind of ways, you know, sooner or later, they're going to be like, hey, you know, we haven't been well done by our publishers in a lot of ways. And they are disorganized and they are making more and more money while paying their employees and their authors less and less and um, offering fewer and fewer services and whatnot. So you know, sooner or later, someone builds a better mousetrap. And I think it's not going to be long before writers are able to just go direct to their audience um, in, a, in a very big way that becomes kind of more common and mainstream than, than it is at the moment, you know. Um, that was a pretty big swing. We'll see if that really happens. But I felt, I felt really good about it, as I was saying. <laughs> you were really comfortable as you were saying it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we'll see. Um, Cause who knows, but that's, but I, I feel like something's got to give, you know, the other thing I will say that's maybe a little bit less heartening um, for the people doing the mass resignation is that having been in publishing just like 15 or so years, which is not long given uh, full scale of the thing. I've just seen so many things come and go already. Like when the Kindle came out, people lost their minds. It was like the apocalypse, like publishing is over. We're never going to have books again. Like, like in all seriousness, they weren't kidding. They felt this way, or at least they were writing those articles. Um, and nothing, none of that happened. Like, you know, like uh, Barnes and Noble's you can't tell, you can't see from here. That's like filled. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so, it's like, yes, things are always going to change, but um, it's usually not the massive uh, revolution that people make it out to be, uh, for better or worse. So I think it's probably going to be some time. But the other thing is like, slowly but surely, there is, a, you know, there has to be a new generation of people who come in and replace the older generation. And I think regardless of privilege level or, or, or education level or what have you, I think this generation of young people coming into the workforce are just different. Like they grew up during, you know, 
they went from, you know, were born, were born on 9-11 and, you know, came of age during the financial crash and then it was COVID, like they are not putting up with any BS and that's for the best. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that going forward, it will be a better place to be and a more equitable place to be. Um, but, you know, we just have to remember that that happens from the bottom up because, you know, the people who own these companies are in like, they don't know, they don't know what's going on down here. They're just putting numbers on a spreadsheet and saying, go do this. You know, um, yeah. I get all of that. I work in government. So like. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So I'm I get sure. it. <laughs> I can only imagine. Yeah. You know. On this note, are there any trends that you've noticed over time in publishing that you like really love and find very fascinating? For me, it's like the rise of the new adult genre and like the rise mm -hmm. of like the tiny printer. Like Jennifer L. Armentrout is like a hugely successful author and helped get Blue Box Press off the ground. Stuff like that. Like that mm -hmm. I find fascinating. What do you find? Stuff that I think is really exciting. I mean, the as much as we we were talking about how terrible, you know, and slow to change publishing is, it's unreal how much has changed in the past 10 years in terms of the conversation in terms of who is on the editorial staff when you walk in and you look around. It's not very useful to say, look at how, how much change there's been because we're so far from all the change that needs to happen. But, you know, the idea of we need to diversify our workplace is a sentence that you need to explain to most people who don't work in kids publishing. They're like, what do you mean? Like, unbelievably so. Even on the adult side of publishing, they're just so, they're like, they're, you know, almost a decade behind YA, it feels like sometimes in terms of their level of progressiveness and understanding and like the vocabulary that they use and whatnot. Um, and, you know, I say this constantly learning and constantly screwing up and like, you know, broadening my perspective and whatnot. So I don't mean to say like, I know it all um, by any stretch, but I, I see a big difference. So I'm grateful for being in Kidlet where it is that way and where um, that push is there. Um, you know, I, so I think that's probably one of the most, one of the most exciting things, things to me. Um, I also think just the, the, in general, sort of the, the borders are breaking down. Like we're talking about that in terms of who, you know, the, the workforce and the corporate culture. But I also mean, like you were saying, like in genre, like in who reads what and what it's supposed to be and whatnot. Um, it, in the same way that I think video games used to be for kids and then the first kids who played them grew up and now they're for adults. It's just, they just stayed for that same group of people. I think in the same way, like there's something that we call YA that people started getting into when they're when they were teens and now they've grown up and they still like it and it's and it's just become this kind of difficult to define and yet you know it when you see it like pornography it's like it's hard to hard to write down what it is but when you see it you're like that's a YA book you know or this is a YA story I mean it's like you, you've probably read um, or you're familiar with uh, Casey McQuiston's book, Red, White, yeah. and Royal Blue, Talking New Adult. So that would be considered new adult. And yet two pages of that and you're like, mm, like I am in familiar territory. Like I know, like it's the same vibe, you know? Um, so that's really cool too. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting and, 
anything that gives people sort of more creative freedom where we're writing to uh, what groups of people want to read, even if they are more niche, where every time we move towards that, that's a good thing. Anytime we move towards, we're going to get more and more restrictive so we can reach a broader and broader audience. That's like corporate think, and that's usually bad um, for the art and for the writer. So yeah, I think that the, the loosening of genre and the loosening of, of barriers like that is a good thing for writers, definitely. I love it. I have an entire episode about like how the new guard of YA is like so interesting because it does breach a lot of those like barriers that used to be erected versus like the old guard of YA like it is YA <laughs> it has very defined terms and you can pick up a book and you can be like that like I know exactly where this was shelved versus like the new guard it's like more diverse more like there seems to be more adult content or like more adult themes or themes that just relate to adults and also like I'm 28 like <laughs> I don't relate to a lot of like adult literature like I'm not married with a kid owning mm -hmm. a house or going through a divorce like mm -hmm. so, like I very much gravitate towards like the young adult because it still has themes that I am living through so like I it's I love it yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, I don't know why the, like, why Casey McQuiston still feels like a bit of an outlier, why there isn't just this enormous flood. I mean, originally, St. Martin's Press were really the ones to coin the term new adult. And it was um, an immediate response to Twilight and Fifty Shades of Grey. And in that time, it was pretty much exclusively like YA, but with sex scenes. And they're and they're over eighteen. Yeah, they're they're in their early twenties. And it was like YA is so horny. Like clearly, people just want to get there. So like, let's just do it. Let's get it there, right? Um, and that didn't really take off. Um, and I feel like when you hear agents or people kind of be like, oh, "New adult," like, oh, "What's that?" It's because of that, because it was this like basically meant only kind of near erotica uh, romance about people in their 20s, pretty commercial. And the feeling, the unsaid thing is like not very well written, like pretty dashed off, like very light. Right. Um, but obviously that's just one thing. Like it can be anything. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's like I think we're just getting books that are that are that thing, except sometimes they're published as YA and sometimes they're published as adults. You know, I, um, if you like fantasy, Laura Sebastian's adult book, Half Sick of Shadows is- uh, <laughs> Okay, so that book, that's an adult book. And her YA editor agreed when we first talked about it. She's like, this is adult, like, yeah, go go with God. This is for, for Delacorte, um, but, I don't know, like it feels like it's the same energy kind of, you know, it's like young people changing the world, you know, and, and yeah. It still reads like a Laura Sebastian book, like. Yeah, yeah, it does. Like that's, I find that very, it all is very fascinating to me. And like listeners can't tell, but there's like a lot of armor <laughs> here. <laughs> I can see it. I'm appreciating it for them. So you talked about this, about how like you're also handling like marketing and publicity and how like should publishing just implode? Like that might be what you like, lean towards. 
has a podcast that reaches out to authors for interviews. Mm-hmm. How do you go about that as an agent? Like, how do you field those requests? Like, how much sway do you have for, to like get an author to do something like that? Like, how does it work? You mean in terms of marketing and publicity? Yeah. That's a good question. So this is really one of the areas that agents are involved in the least. So, um, you know, sometimes I'll get a query saying like, I'm looking for someone to help me publicize this book. And I always say like, I'm not a publicist. And I actually know very little about publicity, to be honest. Um, what, where an agent can help is to, first of all, get more or as much as possible out of your publisher. Because, you know, the publisher decides how much they're going to invest in a particular book. They'll have a marketing and publicity budget. And I think in most places, it's probably just tiered, where it's like people above this level get something, people below this level get the rest. Um, And what you can do as the agent is advocate for more and better things for your author. Like, hey, you know, fly them out to Book Expo or you know, we want to do a cover redesign, you know, for the paperback or, you know, they really didn't like working with this person on tour last summer. Can we do this thing instead? So you're there to be their advocate for the things the publisher does. Um, I also uh, just through working in the industry over time, like I'm in touch with uh, a small number of of, um, like freelance book publicity places like Blue Slip Media. And so if an author wants to work with one of those, I can say, hey, here are the people I know that, you know, authors at Folio have worked with and have had positive experiences, like I can put you in touch with them, et cetera, so forth. So that's an element of it as well, I think. Um, you know, it's tricky. I think on the, one, on the one hand, I think it can be easy to feel that you really need your publisher. To do, to do the heavy lifting. And I think that there's an argument to be made that if the publisher isn't really getting behind your book, there's not a lot that you can do to move the needle for yourself. You know what I mean? Like, I think if you're putting yourself out on tour or you're, you know, uh, you know you're really active on social media, you know, maybe you're moving a couple of hundred copies, but that's not the size of a move that really makes a huge difference. So you could make that argument that like, you know, it's really all to the publisher. However, I think it's really a combination of both. I think when the author is working really hard, the publisher works hard for them. So for instance, Hafsa, Joan He, who wrote The Ones We're Meant to Find, um, they both work with street teams. So they have, you know, their own community and um, network of people that, you know, they send special things to that are working and hustling for them in exchange for special benefits and early looks at things and whatnot. Um, so like Joan and Hafsa, they have like a crew, they have an entourage of people that are like, that they are working with that aren't affiliated with the publisher. Um, So when she's doing that great work and coordinating with the publisher, she'll be like, hey, oh, my street team is gonna, you know, do this thing. And the publisher will be like, oh, great. Well, we can pay for that, those bookmarks that you wanted to, um, you know, send out. We have this other idea. What do you think about this? You know, and then for the next book, like the publisher is like, oh, for your street team, we've got this, that, and the other thing. And like, you know, are you working with so-and-so again? So there's there's a melding. That's why I always tell my authors, Whatever you're doing to publicize your book, 
tell your publisher and copy CC your agent on it because you want to show them all the work you're putting in because then you seem like a, a smarter and smarter investment to them. They're like, oh, this person's hustling. They're putting in the work. Like they're going to make something happen. Like, yeah, we'll help them out. But if someone's just sitting back on their laurels and doing nothing, then they're not going to be like, oh, we came up with all this stuff for you because they have other people they could do that for, you know? Um, so as the agent, again, to circle back to your question, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of that process, but I'm not really directing it. Um, I'm trying to keep it running smoothly um, and to get as much for the author as I can, but your agent really isn't your publicist. You know, they are not a public facing figure, despite what Twitter might make you think. You know, your agent interfaces with your publisher the way a lawyer interfaces with a company, a courtroom, a judge, or what have you. Um, you know, they're not your spokesperson um, in out in the wide out in the wide world, which is one of the things that I think is unfortunate about Twitter is it has created this idea of agents as this like, um, you know, kind of rock star public persona or yeah. like they're <laughs> supposed to be like your mom or your big sister or your girlfriend. Like it's, it's really intense. And, you know, as, as, as people were saying on the, it's the, it's just a schmuck. Like I, I'm just a schmuck in a room and so is everybody else. And like, um, and none of us, are public figures or want to be. Um, so, you know, I think that's a, an element to, to remember as well. So fascinating. I definitely thought like an angel was like definitely omnipotent, like just like hanging out, pulling all the strings. No, the agent is like, <laughs> uh, the agent is, is better like, uh, rather than like sort of the overlord pulling all the string, think of them as like, I'm going to send in this assassin because they know like if I try to attack the front of the gate everyone's I'll just be instantly killed but the agent knows the back way in and the agent is friends with the cook and the agent like you know uh, knows like the, the the sensitive spot to hit with the arrow to get exactly what you want and like to apply the exact amount of pressure so you know, that's the thing is I think sometimes maybe from TV and movies too, we get the idea of agents being these like powerhouse, yeah. you know, I'm going to shout you into doing what I want or, or even the idea that the agent can get you the better deal. Like, I swear to God, your book gets you the deal unless your agent is incompetent, which most are not, um, you know, at a certain level, you know, it's the book. And I sometimes heard like, oh, well, you know, I want to get an agent who's going to get me a great deal. Your book is either going to be the thing that publishers are all looking for, or they or or it isn't. And um, you know, and, and I think an agent can negotiate your your situation for better or worse. But it's not like the agent is like, you know, by force of will, I'm going to get you to give me more money, or like by this magic called negotiating, you're going to give us more money. It's like it, it's not exactly how it works. It's it's. It's more about the strategy of who are you sending it to and when, you know, when are you following up? Um, you know, how do you ask for what you need? Like, it's a much more subtle art than that. At least the way um, I try to do it, you know, someone might say, John, you're as, about as subtle as a Mack truck, but you know, <laughs> I don't know. But that's like, I think the philosophically, I think that's more in line with what agenting actually is this day and age than the kind of like, Ari Gold, you know, Hollywood image of, of you know, this crazy uh, shouting agent, you know. Fascinating. Fascinating. You're breaking a lot of like minds right now. 
<laughs> I definitely thought you had more power. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I wish, I wish we did. That would be great. Do you have a favorite project you've ever represented or like a project that's like the closest to your heart that you've represented? And like, I get that this is kind of asking like a parent what, who's their favorite kid, but like every parent has a favorite kid. So <laughs> I can't, yeah. I can't, I can't pick one that's been published. Um, but I'll give you something maybe a little bit juicier, which is I will tell you the projects that I offered on as an agent did not get, and I still haven't gotten over it. Okay. So these are things where it's like, you know, I read the manuscript. I'm like, this is genius. Can I be your agent? But also like 10 other people said the same thing and it wasn't me. And one of them was The Hazelwood by Melissa Albert. I read that on submission and I was like, this is just white hot fire and it's amazing. And Melissa is also just incredible and um, is herself a podcaster, uh, or at least she was with Barnes and Noble. And um, so that one, man, Oh man, oh man, oh man, did I want that one. I'm still crying in my beer over that one. And then the other one is um, uh, Stephanie Garber, Caraval. And they, different agents got them, but they both were bought by Sarah Barley at Flatiron. And Sarah has never offered on a book of mine. So this is just like this like triumvirate of John ego problems is like I didn't get these two books I haven't sold a book to this editor I'm so upset by all of this so that's the like I'll give you that in terms of like favorite projects that I I tried to represent but did not care of all in the Hazelwood are two really special uh really special books love it I am I have reached out to Stephanie Garber for an interview like 17 billion times and I'm just like I just love your book so much (laughs) (laughs) I feel you you know, like, hey, if it had been me, I could have gotten you the hookup. That's all I'm saying, you know? Can you kind of talk about like what books your authors have coming? Yes, I can. So um, let's see. Depending on something that has just come out, which I'm very excited about is um, Abdi Nazemian's The Chandler Legacies. Um so Abdi wrote Like a Love Story, which was a Stonewall honoree. I mean, he's just such an amazing human being, an amazing writer. This one is sort of dark academia. It's like about these kids at a private school and their various secrets and lives. Like if you like Donna Tartt and the secret history, like this is the YA for you. Um, so that's something I'm super excited about that just came out. Um, and I want to see, what was the other thing? I wanted to give you something that is like upcoming the next thing, which I believe is coming out this coming fall, um, is that project I was discussing written by Sierra Simone and Julie Murphy. And it's called A Merry Little Meet Cute. And it takes place uh, on the set of a like Hallmark style Christmas movie. But the main character is a plus size porn star. Um, and nobody on set knows that that's her, that's her other job. And it is incredibly sweet. Oh, and the guy love interest is like an ex-boy bander, like whose like career is on the rocks. And so now he's in this sort of like Hallmark movie. I love it so much. Like, but I don't know how to describe that like very loving parody of a Hallmark movie with like body positivity and like serious horniness, but also incredibly like sweet and like 
loving to the characters and like you just love these people so much like and it's funny that is my like brand in a nutshell <laughs> and I cannot I cannot wait for this book to come out um and then for it to like be a movie which I'm sure it will be it just like has to be a Netflix something but those are two things very different um but two projects I'm very proud of uh and that I personally like just loved reading so I hope others will as well I cannot wait for this year's phone book Thank you so much for doing this interview. I like took up so much of your time and I, I'm so appreciative. I just have one last question. It's my closing question to all my guests. What books are you currently binging? Um, so as I mentioned, I'm currently finishing up Firekeeper's Daughter for the first time, which I'm embarrassed to admit because I should have uh, read that years ago. Um, but after that, I am going on to another book that I should have already read, but is a little bit more recent, which is Iron Widow. Um, which I haven't read yet, but also sounds so up my street um, and I cannot wait to dive into. So that's that's next on the list for me. Those both are sitting on my shelf, but I haven't read them either. So like, I know, I know I've been deep in a Sierra Simone like type of way. Do you have the, do you have the thing where if something is really popular and hyped up that it takes you a while to like get yes. on board and read it? That's that's why it takes me forever to read these really good books is because everyone's like, it's so awesome. And I'm like, no, it's popular. It must be, <laughs> you like, know? It's so popular that like some things have been spoiled and so you're just kind of not feeling it anymore. Yeah. Or like, yeah. like mental health. So like deep, dark romance has been where I'm at. So like. <laughs> yeah, I, that's true. Yeah, it's like, I'm not, I'm definitely not into there. Right now there are certain submissions that I'm getting that I'm passing on not because I don't think they're going to sell necessarily, but I'm like, that's just too heavy for me right now. Like I don't have the like emotional capacity to do like a school shooting book or a like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I totally get that. Yeah, well, that was incredibly downer note. <laughs> Bring it back up. It does just to show that like books have their moments and books have their times. And while it might not work right now, it might in the future. Absolutely, that's true. That's very, very true uplifting moment yes thank you so much again my pleasure it was really really fun thank you for having me this has been john kesick from folio literary management in case you can't tell john is the nicest human ever and i really enjoy talking to him be sure to be on the lookout for any of the books mentioned and i will add as many of john's authors to the bookshop.org's storefront as i can for you to peruse as always, you can get these episodes early and ad-free on the Patreon. I took a break from Most Things Podcast during the month of April, but I am back and I'm so excited for some of the things brewing. I also added some fun new summer items to the Etsy store, so be sure to check out all of the merch. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a Bookshelf Binge. I'm your host, Jessica. Please be sure to rate the podcast wherever you are listening, since those ratings really help bring the show to new listeners. Also, at the beginning of June, I'll be hosting a giveaway on Instagram, so if you're interested in seeing those details, you can follow me on both Instagram and TikTok at Bookshelf Binge. Thank you again for listening, and I'll talk to you next week!